Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. So welcome everyone to another uh, Voices with Raveki. This is the second episode <clears throat> in my series with, series with Greg Thomas, and it's uh, so wonderful to have you back. The first one was very exciting, and uh, we were off camera, and I was telling to Greg that in preparation for uh, today, I read a couple of articles, and then I bought uh, for each article the central book that was referenced, and uh, uh, this has been just, it's been very exciting. So um, I, Greg, uh, I'm just going to turn things over to you. I know you've got sort of what you want to talk about, and then we'll do what we did before. I'll just ask questions, and we'll get into a dialogue, hopefully. And uh, so please take it away. All right. I'd be glad to. Thank you once again, John, for having me a guest as a guest on Voices with Raveki. So our theme for today is Democracy as Antagonistic Cooperation for E Pluribus Unum. So right. to ensure that this actually is more of a conversation and dialogue uh, as opposed to a monologue, um, I want to ask you to talk about your con the concepts, not your concept, but you talk about the concept of, um, I'm trying to think, oppositional, opposing, Opponent processing? Thank you, opponent processing. <laughs> Why don't we use that as a jumping off point? Because I see and feel that antagonistic cooperation and opponent processing resonate. I, I, I suspect that they're, the, uh, they're identical. I think that they are different names from different fields for the same thing. Um, and um, just to add into that, I've also recently I guess when I was in Prague late last year, uh, I, I made an argument about democracy should be reconceived as opponent processing at the level of collective intelligence and distributed cognition. Uh, so there's an extended thesis there. But um, the, the core idea, which is at the, also at the center of my theory of relevance realization, um, is that uh, you can see all throughout nature and at many levels of scale, um, a, a convergent solution to problems of adaptation, of, of adaptive fit. Um, and how that works is you get two systems that are biased, and they're biased in opposing directions, but then you get them linking so that they're actually, uh, that opposition is actually uh, cooperating uh, to create an ongoing evolution of, of something. So, uh, one, one easy example is your autonomic nervous system. It's trying to continually calibrate the level of arousal you should have for a situation. Um, and what it does is it has the sympathetic system, which is biased, and that's the right word, to interpreting as much as it can as an urgent threat or urgent opportunity. 
and the parasympathetic system, which is biased to interpreting as much as it can as um, a clear opportunity for rest, relaxation, uh, and, they, and, and they're constantly pushing and pulling on each other. And so your level of arousal is constantly evolving. And you, you, got, you, you see the same thing in your vision. You've got opponent processing between your focal and background. There's probably, it's not as clear, but probably something like opponent processing going on between the left and the right hemispheres. It, 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 and then, uh, you know, I basically argued it's at the core of a relevance realization where you have all of these opponent processes that are trying, doing opponent processing between overfitting and underfitting. And you're doing that in order to bring about an optimal grip on the world. So how did that, did that work, Craig, as a good introduction? Absolutely. Uh, those are the examples that I recall. And I, I did see and, and re-see your lecture in Prague. So if you could, and of course, you won't be able to give the entire lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could, in a nutshell, explain the connection you see between opponent processing and what I'm calling antagonist cooperation and democracy. I totally agree. That's why, frankly, that's why I titled this session, Democracy is Antagonistic Cooperation for E Pluribus Unum. But I wanna be able to, to riff on your thesis uh, and then we just dive off from there. Sure, sure, sure. So um, the argument uh, has a bunch of premises and for each premise, there is also an argument and evidence, but I won't, I'll just, People can go and watch the talk if they want the more in-depth argument. Uh, and we'll put notes to a link to that in the notes. Uh, so the idea is uh, there is such a thing, which I think is now becoming non-controversial. Uh, there is such a thing as the collective intelligence of distributed cognition, which is more than just the sum of the individual cognitions. There's a synergistic effect. There's a, an emergent capacity uh, for problem solving. Um, that distributed cognition comes with distributed labor. So it's ability to get a, a, an optimal grip on the world. It's larger, more expansive. It can deal with hyper objects that individual cognition can't deal with. So science as distributed cognition can track global warming, even though none, no one person could, uh, as an example. And then the idea is democracy is such a, a system of collective intelligence um, working on uh, large distributed cognition in order to solve very large complex or, and complicated problems, some of them verging on hyper-object kind of uh, entities. Um, and that democracy uh, can be understood as an attempt to bring something into that collective intelligence that we see at work in individual intelligence, evolving anticipatory adaptivity, and you bring that about by opponent processing. And the idea about democracy is that what it's supposed to do is have opponent processing where people, there are sides that represent different biases. And my, my quick take on this, and we can expand on this, is when the right is at the best, the right is recognizing that we're not just animals and we are called to virtue. We are called to responsibility. The left at its best reminds us, nevertheless, we are finite animals subject to fate and we therefore need compassion and support. And then, and they're biased, and it's good to be biased because these are values. But it, when, but they, of course, are in opponent processing with each other because one is about our transcendence and the other is about our finitude. And what democracy can do is have them do opponent processing so that the 
collective intelligence is much more capable of evolving an optimal grip on the problems that that state or nation is facing. And then the critique is that we have lost that because democracy has degenerated into polarized adversarial processing where you don't recognize, in opponent processing, you realize that the other person's bias is the best field of correction for your bias, right? And vice versa. And so both parties, polls, are committed to the polarity. The polarity is more important than the polls. But what we now have is in adversarial processing, the other side is, each side demonizes the other, and the other side is trying to destroy the other. The opponent processing is lost. The collective intelligence basically uh, fragments and, and degenerates and loses its capacity, as we're seeing, uh, to do any significant problem solving. And then what happens, of course, in that situation is the people that are, that make up and are supposed to be served by uh, the machinery of that collective intelligence get more and more frustrated, which then tends to put people into a kind of scarcity mentality where there's a narrative bias, and then they enhance the polarization, and the whole thing feeds on itself in a negative way. So that, that's sort of as simple as I can make the argument, but I hope that was, wasn't, I hope that wasn't too messy. Not at all. Not messy at all. Very clear. And um, for me, it reminds me very much of one of the key points uh, of the thesis that Steve McIntosh presents in his book, Developmental Politics, is that certain forces in American life and American politics in particular are interdependent polarities. Yes. One yes. is necessary for the other. And as you say, as far as opponent processing, the biases of one and the gaps and what's missing in one is filled by the other. Yeah. So, I mean, just that realization, and, and I think this is probably more the province of political philosophers, you know, like Steve McIntosh, like a Danielle Allen, who I think we'll be discussing also, at least I intend to, is that they can step back and look at the situation and say, okay, we can see how they relate to each other. But when we're talking about political actors, particularly politicians, uh, <laughs> whose job it is, is to, you know, get elected again and, and ostensibly represent their side, uh, the admission that the other side is, is a necessary complement is not necessarily something that their side wants to hear. So, so, yeah. so I guess one of the questions that, that, that we have to um, contend with is how can we go about getting not just politicians, but people who find themselves on one, in one tribe or another, on one side of the spectrum or another, and really strongly there to start to see a larger picture where the other side is seen as very important, not an enemy, as an opponent. Yes. There's a difference between an enemy and an opponent. Yeah, do martial arts. Right, they're opponents, uh, yeah, yeah. but they're not enemies or they shouldn't be conceived of as enemies. So, so what are some of the steps? Now, of course, I frankly think this leads to 
a discussion of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, but I, I think that's a great. No, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I yeah. thought. Uh, so, I mean, um, well, I'm going to say something, and then we'll, of course, dovetail with, uh, with both of the uh, the articles you had me read. Um, uh, so, one of the things that used to do this for America, um, I, I mean, I'll qualify it in a sec, but you know, there was there was an over there was an overarching shared Christianity and a Christian framework uh, that um, prioritized something above, namely God or the sacred. That both parties had, they were supposed to have a stronger allegiance or commitment, right? Uh, under God and all, all that. I, I'm not advocating for this. Right. I'm just I'm just doing a historical explanation, right? right? Um, um, and, and then the idea was, one way of interpreting that is that helped to function as a sacred thing that uh, gave value to the process over the opponents, uh, and therefore pre prevented them from. So no matter how bad they were, you know, they're they're still they're Christians, and you know, and we're all we all have to honor God, and we all have to. Right. And then that merged and was also being gradually replaced with American civic religion, which is in which America was rendered sacred um, in a lot of ways. And Americanism was a thing. Uh, Chris Master Pietro and Philip Misfic and I talk about this in the zombie book uh, on the meaning crisis. Uh, yeah, you know, and then when the Americans won the, the Cold War, that sort of lost uh, its grip. There was also there was also problems in both of those formulations, because of course there's the formal separation of church and state in America, uh, and so the relationship to Christianity was always um, one that was going to be like inevitably subject to deep question and criticism. And then the Americanism um, that has the opposite problem uh, that all civic religions do. Uh, which is, and this is a Tillich uh, criticism. Tillich is very fresh on my mind because I'm teaching the course on Beyond Nihilism, and I've just gone through Tillich's ah. Courage to Be with my students. Okay. Uh, but it, you know, the problem with it is uh, uh, it, 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 it can become a kind of idolatry uh, in which you have something that's finite. It might be large and powerful like the United States, but it's still finite, um, and... It's standing in for ultimate reality, um, and in that sense is subject to idolatry. And of course, that idolatry did come home to roost in certain ways uh, for America. Um, and so I think the two things that acted as uh, glue um, have largely dissipated in a very significant way. The first one had an advantage over the second one in that at least in some ways, in some contexts, although it was also in serious decline, Christianity provided a place for the cultivation of wisdom um, and virtue as something distinct. And not just, of course, Christianity, but you know, some of the other uh, places, uh, uh, homes of worship um, and religion. So that's my take on what used to do it. Um, and then, of course, one more thing, which as you're articles point to interacted with both of those was a shared popular culture. Um, and that can't do it anymore since the advent of cable TV. Mm. So cable TV and then more social media has 
fragmented. So, for example, we could never have a phenomena, although they were British, but we could never have a phenomena like the Beatles again, mm. because we just do not have the consensus. We just do not have the consensus uh, audience, right, that we used to have. Um, and so popular culture is also uh, deeply fragmented. So the three things, and they, like I said, I'm presenting them analytically, but they all interpenetrated and talked to each other in interesting and sometimes deleterious ways. But all of those are in remission, significantly so. And then there's nothing, and, and uh, as Yates would say, the center cannot hold. Right. Definitely. Thank you. Good analysis. Um, I think for the sake of, of your viewers, we need to give them at least the titles of uh, the articles that we've been referencing. Oh, please. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah great. Can you, can you do, can you do I that, can please? I can gladly do that. Uh, one is uh, entitled, Can Civic Jazz Resolve the American Dilemma? And it's found at uh, a journal online called the Journal of Free Black Thought. And it's also found on my own uh, blog, tuneintoleadership.com. Uh, and Excellent article, by the way. Thank you. Very well written. Thank you. I appreciate Very that. well written. I, I, I took, it took a lot uh, for me to write that. Let me just say this before I say the second article. Um, that book, Civic Jazz, uh, which integrates the work of Kenneth Burke, um, you know, who's known primarily in studies of rhetoric and communications, but who uh, was a true polymath who was very influential on the work of uh, and thought of Ralph Ellison, who we'll refer to, and Albert Murray, um, how his thought on rhetoric as a distinction from the persuasive capacity of rhetoric, but more rhetoric as it relates to how art is a communication vehicle that integrates not only the artist, but the artist and the audience, which Ah, the artists yeah. and the audience together get into a have a communication, a rhetorical relationship, and that the art form, in this case jazz, and what it represents and what it signifies and the feelings it evokes can actually have you move towards more of a re realization of American civic and democratic ideals. So this book, and so I've, I've read this book that came out like seven, eight years ago, maybe 10. And, but I hadn't reviewed it or written on it. And I felt compelled to do so. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I did because it allowed me to put a lot of different ideas together. So I recommend that to folks to check out. And then the second was one that, that featured uh, someone who we didn't mention, I don't think the first conversation, but I definitely had every intention of mentioning in this one, uh, Zach Stein. Yeah, yeah, Zach's amazing. Yes, he really is. So democracy, the title of that article found at tuneintoleadership.com is Democracy and a Post-Tragic Blues Sensibility. Okay. Yeah. So, so that ties into our first conversation because there's a, there's a strong connection and relationship between the arts, culture, civic life, uh, philosophy, um, that I'm gonna use a, a, a story, an anecdote, what Kenneth Burke called a representative anecdote uh, that I think will tie into one of your explanations 
and maybe tie together kind of the sacred and the secular that we talked about in the first one. And right, that right, virtue please. of you mentioning yeah. Christianity and then a civic religion, which is more secular, that kind of bring those two together musically. Yeah. So yeah. the great um, mid-century alto saxophonist, Charlie Parker, who if there were a Mount Rushmore of the greatest jazz improvisers, you would see Charlie Parker right up there with Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. But Miles Davis was a young student, student at Juilliard who played with Charlie Parker. So Charlie Parker really is like, you know, one of the founding fathers in the sense of the style called bebop. So anyway, there's a song in jazz called Cherokee that was written I think by Ray Noble in the 30s, and it was a part of the swing era. Da, 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 da. So big bands played this song, right? Well, Charlie Parker, as he was developing his abilities on the saxophone and playing in different groups, Cherokee was one of the songs that he worked on. And he found one night that if he played the chord changes to Cherokee, but played in the higher partials of the harmonies, that he could actually play a sound that he was hearing and feeling, but couldn't yet play. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he found that, and, and, and without going that deep into music theory, let's just say that if you've got uh, one to eight, one being one note, the eight being the octave higher, that if you keep going, the ninth note will be the same as the second note, the tenth note will be the same as the third note, right? Like that. So if he played from nine and 11 and 13, if he played in that realm, he could play what he was hearing. And this was like the start of the birth of the style called bebop. He said it liberated him, it freed him. And, and, and what I take from that is the necessity I've written on this, that sometimes in order for us to get beyond the boundaries of the status quo and the norms, what, what Charlie Parker called it was stereotyped chord changes that they were playing. Right, right. He had to tap into higher octaves. So I use the higher octave metaphor as a way of pointing to both a sacred higher octave, but also a secular higher octave. We need ways of realizing and tapping into wider, deeper, broader ways of conceiving things beyond the, the, the norm status quos of what's, what keeps us caught in adversarial processing in order to get to the opponent processing or the higher dimensions of what's already there. Now, when I say that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take something. Let's, let's talk about an individual note, musical note. So you have A, B, C, so you play that note, right? But if you analyze that one note, there will be other notes that are partial that make up those notes. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Oh, really? Yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah, I did. That's, I did. A, that's, that's, 
you know, that's music theory. And that's also, you know, dealing with sound, just vibrations. So even within one note, you have other partials that are a part of it. So a lot of times if yes, you yes. if you hear a, a vibraphone, they play one note, but it'll vibrate other notes that are part of yeah, that. Yeah. The point being that even when you have a oneness, one entity, there are other parts that are part of it. That ties to me yeah. into E Pluribus Unum. Out of right. many, out of many one. notes, yeah. out of many peoples, a oneness, a unity, a diversity in unity. So of course we're talking metaphorically, talking musically, but these are the things that cause us to conceive of ourselves as democratic citizens that can hopefully allow us to see the bigger picture of what was intended with uh, democracy 2.0. If, if democracy 1.0 was direct democracy in Greece that you talked about and awakening from the meaning yeah. crisis, uh, yeah. democracy 2.0 being the American form of democracy, then these are some of the things that we need to start to, I think, assimilate into our language as we speak about this uh, to get beyond some of these just, it's like dead ends and roadblocks that, that we get into. We kind of step away from it and, and we're tapping into what? We're tapping into cultural forms, cultural dynamics, music is cultural, language is cultural. So how we even describe ourselves is really crucial. I have to tell you that as someone who, <laughs> and again, it's not just the propositional, but the propositional has its place. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I wanted to, so when I was reading the article, and as you say that, a couple of things came sure. up that I wanted to, uh, to broach with you. One was, um, I, like, yeah, after I went through the, the sort of three things that held the center that are gone, um, you know, and I, I, I made a specific proposal um, in Prague. I said, um, and right now I'll talk about the bottom-up proposal. There was a top-down proposal. Maybe we'll come back to that. But the bottom-up proposal was, yeah, you have to change the culture. And the idea was we, we have to, you know, in, in, inseminate the culture. And I like the, what, the term you just used. Uh, you know, it's Langer, but it also comes from uh, Kassir, yeah. right? Uh, cultural forms. Right. We have to put in more cultural forms. Right. And, you know, the way jazz and blues, I, you know, and Plato talks about, you know, the way music trains cognition and right. So totally that and that uh, that lines up with I think it's convergent. I was making the proposal of dialectic into dialogos to give people. All right. Uh, also, that enculturation of cultural forms of of discourse that would allow give them alternatives to the uh, like as i say uh, alternatives to the 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 courtroom of debate and give them access to the courtyard of dialogos but i think it, like and you know i i'm almost always always using jazz metaphors and music metaphors for that and it seems to me like doing like having an ecology of practices and when people were doing both i think would be really like i think that's part of it there, there has to be we have to get this we have to have a broadly shared cultural repertoire of cultural forms yes. that afford, right, the, the the cultural cognitive grammar of appropriating and appreciating democracy as opponent processing. Absolutely. Uh, we also need an abduct an abductive capacity. Abduction. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. You're using it in the Piercean yes. sense as right as different from induction and deduction. Yes. It's the ability to generate an appropriate hypothesis, often overlapping with inference to the best explanation. That's what you mean by abstraction. That's what I mean. And I also mean what Paul Bohannon in a book called How Culture Works, which I first read in the late 90s when I was in grad school at NYU doing a doctoral program. It's such a pleasure talking to you. You are so well read. <laughs> Your mind is so delicious. <laughs> thank you. It's just, oh my God. Well, thank you. Sorry for interrupting. Well, I just, think, I'm just enthusiastic. Why do you think I, I love your theories? You know, all these books that you're mentioning, I mean, you know, and I'm writing them down, I'm ordering them. I could, man, with your After Socrates series, I started rereading Plato. I, I got the I got the one, I have it in the other room, where it's like every day there's a quote from Plato. I'm, yeah, I'm actually yeah, going yeah. through that now. And I date them. That's great. I date them a week ahead. And then I, I'm, so I just, so thank you. Uh, uh, that's, this is one of the, you know, one of the things we said off camera in terms of, uh, intellectuals and thinkers that one of the things, the best things that they can do for one another is just refer the, each other to books, you know, things that have yeah. influenced them. So, um, I'm trying to think, oh, Paul Bohannon, how culture right. works for me, that book was almost like a Bible. I don't mean to be sacrilegious. I'm going to be like you, John, you know, yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But what he talks about there is what he calls, and this is related to abduction. He says, one of the ways that culture progresses and culture moves forward and evolves is through what he calls recontexting. So taking mm. things from one context and putting it into another. Right. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, how yeah. like innovation happens. Yeah. So yeah. my way of taking those four principles and six practices that I talked about in our first discussion that are derived from jazz and presented in the Jazz Leadership Project is taking cult, a cultural praxis, theory into practice and applying it to working with leaders and organizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. we're doing now and what I'm attempting to do is to take some of those same ideas, but apply it on a larger socio-cultural scale and level. Applying these same, because the thing about jazz, that's so prototypically, there's many things that's prototypically American about it. Uh, it was founded and innovated by black Americans. And there's an argument to be made that black Americans by being on the underside and the shadow side of democracy have a view of both what's good and bad about democracy, or at least the shadow side of democracy yeah. and the potential of democracy. So jazz was created by black Americans. And oh, this is a version of the, the adjacent innovation thesis that innovation comes from things that are adjacent, not central to some. Yeah, great. That's a very good point. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. So even yeah. though politically, socially and economically, black Americans uh, were not able to participate in the society with freedom, actually, I mean, literal yeah. freedom yeah. and so obviously. And this is true during the period of enslavement and even through Jim Crow. However, 
Where was there some wiggle room? Culture was where there was wiggle room. To the, the yeah, ability yeah. to define yourself, what's important to you, your values, your meanings, and to, through the forms that you create, to embody those values and meanings, of course, they were adjacent to conversations about freedom, liberty, yes, uh, yes. Uh, a free enterprise system. You know, all of these things, they're around. So you find those elements in the music. Right. And you find the ability to do certain things that couldn't be done in society. So I'll give you an example from jazz. So if you say that the, 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 the general society went on a, on a, say, a march beat, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, jazz through nonverbal means, said, you know something, baby? We're gonna emphasize the two and the four. We're gonna go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. You see the subtle <laughs> cultural yeah, yeah, response? Yeah. You see, so, yeah, so yeah. it wasn't something that they could do and proclaim, you know, even though you have people like Frederick Douglass, one of the greatest, you know, Americans, some say the greatest American of the 19th century. Uh, I would say he and Lincoln are probably pretty close. Uh, but most black folks couldn't. Most black Americans couldn't. Most Negro Americans could not do that. So you put it into your art form. And as I alluded to, I think in the first episode, you put things that you aspire to in it also. So you have that freedom within form. In the playing, but, but doesn't in, that in actually improvising also... in the experimenting? Right. A lot of this is very akin also to American pragmatism. Yes, that's what I. That great. That was exactly the. So I, I yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, you know, and you you mentioned this in in uh, in in, 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 the, in uh, the the article on on, on jazz um, that you know it, there's this. Another prototypical Amer the Amer the philosophy generated in America is pragmatism, right. and then again, uh, like, so it, it's also interacting with that in 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 a really like again it's it, 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 but it it ha I mean yes I, I agree I mean it, it's a form of uh, you know resistance um, and, and in the good sense of the word. Um, and, and because you know out, like you said outright statements or actions are are dangerous. Um, and of course, um, um, I'm not saying, um, when I said adjacent, I didn't mean to in any way diminish the suffering. Oh, I was just no. using a, a name oh, of a thesis. I don't think, yeah. I know, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I didn't take it that way. And you were talking about the very process, how uh, innovation occurred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, but the, but the idea also, uh, uh, you know, of pragmatism, uh, yes. right? Uh, and, and, and that the idea is, you know, um, making it work and innovating and, and creating. But what, although it's sort of propositionally indirect, and this is, you pick up on Langer a bit, right? It's very direct at the level of the non-propositional. So in some ways it catches and can, and can influence, like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to be utopic or, or, or whitewash anything, but, you know, jazz and blues and then later rock helped give a common language between, you know, blacks and whites in America. And this, this is some of the first places where you see 
you know, integration or I don't want, know what word to call happening. Absolutely. Right? Because when you give people when you give people shared cultural forums, right. they stop being other to each other so much. Right. They start to get that lingua franca mm. that they can relate to each other. And I would put to you, it's more persuasive. This is the other side of rhetoric, rhetoric in one sense, when it's initially non-propositional ah. because it engenders trust rather than trying to convince somebody of a particular idea. And that's a different thing altogether. That is so keen, but I'm not surprised, John. Um, this is one of the reasons why when we do our Jazz Leadership Project workshops, we use a live band. Just yeah. a few weeks ago from the taping, this taping, we were in Colorado, in Denver, and we had a live jazz rhythm section. Oh, Keyboard, right. acoustic bass, drums, drum set, drum kit. And the music itself, it goes right to you. It goes past yes. some of the barriers. Yes. So we have them start off with, with Duke Ellington's Take the A Train. Why? Because we're getting ready to go on a journey. You know, go ahead. Have you ever heard of Michael Winkleman? He influenced me a lot. I got to meet him uh, in person about shamanism. Ah. And he talks about how, you know, the shamanic trance. And there's a mixture of music and narrative and a lot of dramatic and musical innovation yes. going on. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, I talk about the flow state. But he, he, he talks about not only interhemispheric integration, but what he calls neural axial. So from like sort of the, the higher, more, at, and, and it's also front back, yes. but what he means is, you know, it's, it's, it's the vertical stack um, and you invoke the vertical uh, earlier on, yeah. right? And so, and, and his point is, as you move down, as you go down, like you said, it, right? You get to stuff that's evolutionarily more older and therefore more and more broadly shared. Uh, and, 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 there, uh, and, and it's also plugs into let, into behavioral responses that are very adaptive and come with a high degree of sort of instinctive confidence. And so, again, that gives you an, 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 a vehicle by which you can come to trust somebody. Right. So, you know, we, we, we lay out, you know, our principles, our practices, you know, we, we, the band demonstrates, but I'm going to give you another anecdote from what actually happened. Please, please. And it was so powerful. So, we, we, we give, gave the mic over to the band members because they don't just play well. They also can articulate what they're doing and why, and it's moving, right. all of that. Right, right. Um, like, you know, like two of the members, um, they've got master's degrees. One of the, one of the members, the, uh, the drummer, um, you know, he's a dean at a charter school in the Bronx, you know, I mean, so very well educated, very, um, learn it as well as being great practitioners of, of, the, of the art and craft of music. So someone got up and said, well, all of that sounds good, but, you know, can you demonstrate Now they had played, but they were talking about, if I remember correctly, they were talking about like, what do you do to integrate someone new into the band? What happens when there's yeah. conflict? He was talking about all these different things. So it's, so someone basically channels them. That was a moment of antagonistic cooperation. So they challenged them to demonstrate. So what they decided to do, and the drummer, uh, who I mentioned before, he says, he says, he says, yes, we'll do that. He said, I'll tell you what, he spoke to his other band members. He says, 
let's not even count it off. Let's not even determine whether it's three, four, 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 whatever the time, let's just start playing. So it started off in a very free form where the bass was playing some notes, piano, the keyboard was playing certain things, the drummer, till after a while, there was nonverbal communication going on so that there was a response from the drummer to what the bassist did and then a response from the keyboard player to what they both did. And before you know it, they were playing a song by McCoy Tyner called Passion Dance. And so they went into the song and by the time they got to the swing period, the, the 20 senior leaders from this organization got up and erupted in applause because they didn't have to explain it. They did it. They demonstrated yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. people were able to participate in it in the moment. Yeah. It was so powerful. So I didn't have to, con we didn't have to, my wife and I didn't have to convince people as to the bridge or the correlation between leadership and teamwork and what they do in the workplace. They saw it. They felt it. At a at a deeper you know a uh, somatic and 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 an aesthetic level you know an emotional level. That's fantastic. That, that's a great anecdote. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I wanted to ask you about the specific theses of uh, each uh, one the the article you wrote and then the conversation with Zach, uh, and then ask you a question in addition. Okay. Uh, uh, so, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the first thesis picks up on what you just said, the capacity for jazz to teach us at this deeper, more centered level of how you can get opponent processing between individual improvisation and interdependence of playing together. And that that is a powerful lesson, right? And, you know, Jennings in his work, and it's been picked up on you know, ritual knowing. A ritual is powerful if it transfers broadly and deeply beyond where you practice the ritual, right? right? And yeah. so I, I, I see that with jazz and then I get it. And maybe you you, uh, you can riff on this a bit because we haven't discussed this as much, but you know, the uh, the proposal that blues uh, allows us to deal with the, the sort of tragic comedies uh, uh, and then, but more importantly, get into the post uh, tragic yes. uh, frame. Right. Um, and why, okay, so I can see why the blues does that. Cause how, what we talked about last time, I wasn't clear quite so much on how that ramified back to tutoring people in democracy. Ah. Uh, maybe a little bit more on that one. The first one really clear, you know, improvisation interdependent with working in literally in concert together. Right. right? Uh, and, and, and I get that. So that that's really clear. I get how the blues makes us post-traumatic and post-traumatic is like what John Rusin says. It's, it's the, the hallmark of maturity is facing reality and to face reality, you have to be in a post, uh, post-tragic. I think I said post-traumatic, I meant post-tragic, uh, yeah. a, a, a frame. Right. But what I'm, what I'm not clear on is the connection between the post-tragic and democracy. Um, I, I got a bit of the argument there, uh, about that, Democracy is about getting us to sort of accept loss, but I, I want to tease that out a little bit more because it's, I mean, for me, it's like, I think democracy is about solving problems. Ah. Um, so that's how I pitched right. it, right? right? So 
you see the tension. I'm not saying there's a contradiction, but there's a question that needs to be asked, and that's the question. Okay, very good. I'm glad you asked it. That's great. So um, I mentioned Danielle Allen earlier. Uh, she's the, her latest book is Justice by Means of Democracy. Okay? Right. Um, but she has an earlier work, which I was looking for, um, that Zach mentions. First of all, the book that I asked Zach to read for a presentation, a short presentation, it was only six minutes. Uh, I'm the co-director of the Omni American Future Project. The Omni Americans is the title of Albert Murray's first book. We had a virtual yeah. event during the pandemic and Zach was one of the presenters. So this is what you, the article you're talking about was actually a transcript of, of Zach's uh, uh, short presentation. The book that he read was called The Hero in the Blues by Albert Murray, okay? Yeah, I ordered it. Oh, thank you, dog. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. So there's a book that he mentioned by uh, Daniel Allen that she wrote about 15 years ago or so called uh, Talking to Strangers, okay? So yes. let, me, let me try to lay this out in a way, uh, often as you do, you have to kind of give context in order to answer yeah, the course. question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So one of the things that Danielle Allen argues in her work is that uh, Ralph Ellison, who we mentioned and quoted um, in our last uh, conversation, is one of the most important democratic theorists of the 20th century. And she comes to that perspective through his classic novel from 1952, Invisible Man, and from his nonfiction work um, found in the collected essays of Ralph Ellison, uh, Modern Library. Uh, but the two works individually that she was basing it on was one is Shadow and Act, which came out in the mid 60s, and then Going to the Territory, which came out, I think, in 1987. She points to Ralph Ellison. You mentioned ritual. Ralph Ellison talks about how any society, social rituals that are derived from the practices of the people and also the institutions of the society, they point to certain dynamics. One of the dynamics he talks about is how you have scapegoat dynamics happening in yeah. society. You have the development yeah, of yeah. guilt. You have, you have uh, um, something or some peoples who become the basis for social cohesion by virtue of them being a scapegoat. Yeah, Gerard makes does a lot of good. Very, that, very, yeah. very similar. And I, I, I'm familiar with Gerard, but I get this directly from Ellison's own work. Right, so what right, he, right. What he was saying is that, you know, in a democracy, any society, democratic or not, is going to have scapegoats. That that seems to be that comes with societies. It seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. But what we need in a democratic society is a recognition of the sacrifices that others have made in order to have to have social cohesion. 
So let's take elections. Whenever you have an election, you have someone who won and you have someone who lost. The fact that those who lost don't commit violence in response to that. Well, until recently. Until recently. Until recently. Yes. <laughs> yes. Recently, yeah. <laughs> it's part of what keeps social cohesion in a democracy. Because you can live to fight another day, to vote another day. Right. So what happened in American society from the time that the concept of, of race came into being and you codified in law, and we're going to talk about this more in our third session. Uh, yes. From the time that you codified race and you start to have a hierarchical grouping of people based on so-called racial identity until, of course, enslavement, my ancestors, my idiomatic kinfolk were the scapegoats. Right. We yes. sacrificed. And and the irony, this is why history is is ironic. Ironically, that sacrifice allowed for not for us social cohesion. I, I said the last time, you know, we got from very familiar with absurdity and oppression right. and domination but it actually allowed for a certain social cohesion among yes, yes. those folks who were racialized and identified as white. So again, we're taking a look at it like this without, you know, we're trying to analyze what actually happened in terms of the dynamics yeah, of I, it. I, I get it. I know you're, you're analyzing, it. you're not justifying yeah, anything. No, no, yeah, the reason yeah. I say that is because a lot of times when people talk about these things, it's hard to talk about because of the the pain and suffering that people, you know, have gone through. And yep. we have to always acknowledge that. But now we're talking there's about there's definitely that. What's that? There's well, I was gonna say there's that, and 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 I think that's paramount. Uh, but I think it's also buttressed by we can't we've lost the ability to distinguish a discourse of analysis from a discourse of justification. Ooh which makes it, we, everything leaps into the court, courtroom of debate. Wow. Um, and where where we think whatever we're doing is we're justifying something or other. Um, and, and, and so, um, I, I, I mean, again, I think, I want to be very clear. I think the emotional suffering is the paramount, but I think it's exacerbated by we have built up this uh, this conflation and confusion we can't adequately distinguish anymore in concept and in practice between, you know, a discourse of analysis like you just did. You are obviously not advocating for any of this or trying to justify it. But nevertheless, you're trying to understand it, which is a different thing than trying to justify it, you know, in immoral terms. And so I just wanted to throw that in as something also that I think really muddies the waters when we try and do this. Like, um, like for it, it, so I just I just wanted to reinforce like that you're very clearly trying to give an analysis here to afford understanding. Exactly. So if we look at that, that dynamic, that social dynamic, and and this is probably the toughest one to analyze, to analyze, 
dispassionately or disinterestedly, but lynchings. That was yes. a social ritual. It is a ritual. I yes, mean, I get it. it's a uh, horrific one. But that was a social ritual. So to, to oh no no it ha it it has all the earmarks of a ritual and, and you know there's purity code stuff flying around. Uh, there 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 there's you know there there's there's symbolic violence. There's an attempt to eradicate some sort of perceived evil. Ooh, exactly. Um, and and there's magic in there somehow, like, right? Uh, and of course, there, it's an act of terror, you know, like the Romans' use of crucifixion. Very, very similar, right? Uh, very, very similar uh, political ends. Yeah, totally, uh, totally. I, I, I think, I mean, I, I made this argument about Nazism and uh, com communism, how they we fail to see that there is a religious dimension to them. If we understand them only as political or economic behaviors, we're missing something. And I'm not denying that there is obviously political and economic aspects to lynching, but there's this religious context to it. Because uh, religion can go bad just like anything else, right? Uh, and yeah, I, 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 and to me... And of course, I'm speaking from the outside, and so please take that into consideration. But for me, that that's what make that's what takes it into the domain of horror, uh. as a, as opposed to something just extremely, you know, terrifying, right? Or you know, there's an element of horror in there. Uh, I, I, like it, it, uh, I, 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 I'm sort of at a loss of words well, other no, than to no, say okay, that. Okay, now but let's pursue this. I'm going to get back to. The function that served and how it relates to Danielle Allen and talking to strangers as it relates to Ellison. But let's pursue, please, but, but please. Let's pursue this for a second, because you're right. Yeah. And I know you make that you make a clear distinction of, of horror. Um, yeah. So talk about that for a second. Explore what you mean by horror. And, and, well, and the, what do you mean the, by that? Some it, of the nuanced distinctions you make. So. There's so horror is when, you know, there's your sense of uh, uh, your grip on reality is slipping because um, some of the fundamental structures are being undermined. And one way you can do this is you can you can invoke the, the like the supernatural. Um, and I, I'm talking here analytically. I, I don't actually metaphysically believe in the supernatural, but you can invoke something that's outside, right? That's profoundly outside. And when, when you're invoking like the, this, these, these notions of incohate impurity mm. and incohate threat, there isn't like, it's, I'll use Tillich. Like, here's the distinction. Fear, you have a specific object in a well-defined problem and you know what you're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. In anxiety, you don't, it's an ill-defined problem. You don't have a specific target. And what you try to do magically is you try to translate that into a fear and an object that you can then deal with. But what's underneath is a pervasive anxiety that's being displaced. And so there's this underlying sense that if we don't, and forgive me, I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm trying to speak from that framework. Sure. I'm not speaking as I would wish to speak, right? right? right. But if we don't kill this person right. in this, like in this really de degrading, yes. you know, visceral manner, somehow everything's going to fall apart. Right. And there's this 
horrific, like 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 a sacrifice in a horror movie, a good horror movie, yeah. like one well done. That's what I'm trying to convey. Did, did that land for you? Did that oh, make sense? Time. I mean, there's a movie. Let's go to pop culture for a second. There's a movie called Get Out that uh, came out. I don't know five six years ago, um, <laughs> and it's it's suspenseful. And it has elements of psychological horror, N- not so much, uh, you know, the physical horror, you know, with, you know, the, yeah, the chainsaw, yeah, 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 totally. you know, massacre, it's more psychological. So you have a, a, a black American young man going out with someone who is a, a, a white identified young lady and she introduces him to her family. And they are on the surface, you know, they're good white liberals. And they've right. got a picture of Obama on, on the wall, and they're like, you know, yay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And this is, but this gets to some of the psychology. But what these people were doing is actually they were, they were stealing and appropriating the humanity of the of 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 black americans who they yes i mean yeah. I, I mean so that you had people who were there who were outer surface they were you know they, they were colored you know like i am but their sense of humanity were gone they were more like actual zombies to go to your book and so how did they do this? Well, the wife was a psychologist and she knew how to use certain techniques, I would say techniques of hypnosis. And so she is sitting there with this young man and she's oh. able to get him to concentrate on something. I forget what the, what the object was, but she ended up taking him into himself where he could see and feel himself falling deeper within himself into the, like, you know, I don't know what they call it, the, the dark place or, and he couldn't get out. Oh. That was horror. That was Okay, horror. can I give you one back? Yes. Can I give you one yes. back that was in my mind? Okay. That's amazing. I haven't seen that, but I'm going to yeah. see it. So I, I want to talk about the older version, not the newer version. And spoiler alert, spoiler <laughs> alert. So first of all, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the new version, which is was horrible. The old version of the Wicker Man. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen it. Oh, so this movie, uh, there's this police detective. He goes to investigate a disappearance, and he starts to sense that this girl is that what he he finds out that Christianity has been displaced and they've returned to paganism on this island. And then he starts to suspect that maybe the girl was sacrificed because the crops are failing. And he gets lured into this uh, uh, thing where he thinks he's going to find uh, she thinks that maybe she's still alive and he's going to find her. And they and it's so archetypal. He's in this parade and he's disguised. He thinks he's disguised as the fool and he's in the parade. And then they suddenly grab him and they put him in a, the wicker man, which is this huge wooden. And he's the sacrifice. Oh. And. What's particularly powerful is he's the devout Christian. And so he is, right, he's, he's, 
his Christianity is at war, right, with the pagan. And it's, like you said, there, there's no big monster, there's no, but it's absolute horror because of exactly that. This is what we're talking about, that, that element of this goes beyond, you know, emotional resentment or hatred. There's a deeper cracking of, right, of the, on the ligaments of reality. And something is seeping through and people are trying to staunch that in, like in this really um, symbolic and, and almost unconscious manner. So, uh, but th- th- see it if you get a chance. Because I will. For me, it's an excellent example of, you know, uh, of example, something very analogous to what we're talking about with the lynching. Very a- analogous. Absolutely. I think it was called the sunken place. I, I, it came to me, the sunken place. Yeah. And what would happen is these, these, once they were in the sunken place and couldn't get out and could barely speak, and emote, they had modern day auctions of people being sold to different people who were able to afford them and never did a I mean, gosh. it's like, it was, uh, but now to just trans- That's brilliant symbolism, though. Oh, brilliant. Wow. You, know, you render people zombies and then they're just open to manipulation right. and enslavement. Right, right. So back to the. Uh, 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 the book that Zach Stein was talking about by by um, uh, D- Danielle Allen, talking to strangers. Right. The basic idea was the, uh, is that how can we as democratic citizens deal with one another like we're closer to being friends, even though we're not, we don't know each other in a familial way or maybe we're not neighbors, but can we as American citizens, one, respect and honor those who sacrifice, those who actually lose, and we honor them, okay? And we thank them for having such, having the grace to keep moving even though they lost. And you know, it ties into ideas right. of sportsmanship, yeah. but at a higher octave, I think. And Ellison, in his work, fiction and nonfiction, talked about these dynamics of a democracy. So the blues right, is right. A, I see where this the, is going the, blues, the yeah. blues is both a tragic comic dynamic and a post-tragic dynamic. It's yeah, a tragic yes. comic dynamic in that tragedy, loss, death is real. And those who created the blues were very familiar with that. They were familiar with what Orlando Patterson calls social death. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. they couldn't, you, you couldn't even rest assured that your family would be kept together. You might have people sold yeah. to another plantation or something, and your family is, is broken apart, let alone being yes. whipped and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. So that's the tragic part. What's the comic part? One of the things that Danielle Allen talks about in talking about Ellison is, and I, I find this in Ellison's work too, if what do we do if we're in a situation of, 
and, and this is very interesting. I, I've never talked about this, but how do I respond when I'm seeing a horror movie? How do I deal with it? Like, like my wife, Jewel, she can't watch them because she has nightmares at night. What do I do? Right, in response? Right. I laugh. Yeah. I laugh at the horror, particularly when it's like, you know, blood and glore, you know. Yeah, I don't find those movies. Yeah, scary I don't at all. find, I find them. I don't, yeah, but I yeah, mean, yeah. but like the real ones that are scary where you feel when something happens, I guess my way of, of reacting or responding is to laugh. Laughter, comedy, humor. Right. Yeah, yeah. Being yeah. something that we turn to as a way to cope with life. And to and to and to as a so it's a tragic comic, you know. Now, can I speak briefly to that point of humor? Just please briefly? do, but I do want to make one more point about the comic dimension. Oh, finish then. Finish, you know, finish, to connect finish. Kenneth Burke. Okay. One of the things that right. Kenneth Burke in his work he talks about, you know, tragedy. He talks about comedy, but he says that as m members of a democratic society, from a pragmatic, you know, from a perspective of pragmatism where you have experimentation, you have ameliorism, where things can get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, yeah. there's a bias towards- Bootstrapping, right, bootstrapping. Bias yep. towards action. And then based on that action, we can assess, be empirical and assess what are the results? Yeah. What do we need to adjust and change? Um, oh Lord, don't lose your, don't lose your train. Uh, so you, you went to Burke. Right. Thank you. And the comic. One of the things he says that as we engage in our experimentation, in our improvisations, in our trying to make things better, is that we're going to find ourselves in the midst of making mistakes. We, of course. We're going to find ourselves maybe as we fight against a system being implicated in the perpetuation of that same system. Of course. And that's a course. comic dimension. It's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, yes, yes. So so, yeah. so that dynamic is, is, is there, that tragic comic. But the post-tragic, the blues idiom sensibility that we talked about in the first session is post-tragic because it acknowledges and admits and owns up to the tragic. But it says, I woke up this morning. The sun is shining. I'm breathing. If I'm fortunate to have a loved one, I can I can have an attitude of gratitude. I can count my blessings. Now these are Christian riffs because I grew up a Christian. Yeah. So these are Christian riffs, counting your blessings. But you can still appreciate what you do have, and you can appreciate the possibility of another day and doing better tomorrow. So that's a more of a post tragic perspective. Okay, so. I'm seeing that. Let me see if this is landing. Okay. If it's landing with yeah. me, I'm getting it right. Mm -hmm. So the idea is this, you know, training this kind of comportment yeah. helps democracy because we're going to make mistakes um, and, we're, and we're going to lose. But if we, can, if we can see through them rather than being blinded by them, we won't degenerate into adversarial processing. We'll still keep our commitment and our comportment to the process as a whole. Did I get the argument? Absolutely. Is that the argument? That's a very key part of the argument. Yes. Okay, so I get that really well. Uh, that makes sense to me. 
Oh, the thing I wanted to say about humor was uh, absurdity is when there's a perspectival clash, when the cla- uh, and, and and you experience it negatively. But if you can, but humor is when you take the perspectival clash and you play with it, and it, it allows for kind of an insight. Monty Python is a famous oh, yeah. example of playing. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, yeah, there that move. Um, it, it, it's I can see why that could be very important uh, too, because. In democracy, there's inevitably going to be perspectival clash, yes. and you can even you could you could degenerate into that's absurdity, and then have like a purity response. Right. That's bad. Right. Or you can oh no, make be, be joke about it, joke about it. There's humor in it. Right. Uh, people used to be able to tell jokes across the Republican Democratic yeah. divide. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean like even Ronald Reagan was capable of do, of doing that. Even Ronald Reagan. Right. And, like that seems to just have disappeared. Yeah, I mean, but I have one question okay. that still is looming okay. from from the argument, yes. which is I found. Uh, so I got, you, you you gave me feedback. I got the core argument. It's a good argument. Okay. What I didn't hear is what happens to the displaced scapegoat function. What what like that doesn't? I mean, according to Gerard and others, that doesn't go away. Right. Like so, he proposes Christianity because Christianity takes the scapegoat and then inverts it and makes it the most sacred. And that and, and blows the scapegoat mentality apart from the inside, um, and so there's a particular thing you have to do. Uh, do, do like so, what in your uh, uh, analysis? Uh, so, like, thank God we've you know we've largely eradicated lynching and other scapegoating, right? But it seems to me that like that function will just it's like a hydra. You cut off one head or two, and it'll just grow somewhere else. Do, do, do you understand what I'm? I, I understand uh, the, totally with the you challenge. Mean. Yeah. Like, like after um, 9/11, uh, when yeah. for many um, people who practice Islam, Muslims became the enemy. The scapegoat. Yeah, 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 yeah. One one response, and I'm, I'm going intra group here. One response among uh, amongst Black folks was like. You know, and it, and it's really not a charitable response, but it's like, whew, maybe some of this pressure would be off us now. You know, right, I'm, I'm serious. Right, you right. know what I mean? It's not that we, no, you know, we, yeah. we look there. There are black Christians, black Muslims. You know, they are black yeah. Buddhists. But it was like a relief because somebody else could take that load. Now, if the so the so this is, I guess, this is a really deep question. Is, yeah. And I guess I'm going to go to more of a concept of, of if we can have more of a of a egalitarian distribution of losses, where it's not just ah. the same winners over and over again. If we could have a more of a shared sensibility of winning and losing and fighting to another day that can that can that can that can do it i mean but i also think that as we and this is more of a getting to the aspect of pragmatism dealing with uh, uh that everything is changing and open and contingent evolving even though scapegoating is probably a key part of all human societies individually and perhaps collectively i wonder if we can transcend that impulse that impulse becomes from i would say the ethnocentric stage of human development more of a tribal orientation where you've got one tribe over there and they're the enemy 
They're not humans. I think we yes. can. I, I think we can. We can transcend it to a certain extent. I mean, I don't have to demonize people who are identified as white. I don't have to make white people the scapegoat in order for me to feel coherence in, in my life. In fact, yes. I decry the very concept of race itself, yeah. <laughs> which we'll talk about the yes, next time. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, next so, time. So, it's, it's, but, but just to, you know, because we're getting to the part of our conversation, we're going to have to come to a close soon. I do want to say some things more about Ellison in relation Please. to democracy. Why would Danielle Allen say that he may be one of the greatest democratic theorists of the 20th century? A couple of reasons. One, one of the things that Ellison says that as a, as a writer, um, as American writers, and I could say, you could say writers in the English language, you have a responsibility to the furtherance of the language. You're using the language, yeah, you have a responsibility yeah. to continue. And I further. feel that too. Furthermore, yeah. as a citizen in a democracy, you have a personal responsibility for the continuation of democracy. It's not yes. just about, you know, what party you're in, the political dimension, it's personal responsibility. So if I, and this yes. gets into the omni-American ideal, if I will take personal responsibility for being an American and for living and exemplifying democratic principles of equality, of liberty, of freedom, of certain values, some which are interdependent polarities. If I yes. say I'm going to embody that and live that, then that's something you strive to do. However, this is now this gets into the more the ironic part. One of the things in a great essay of Ellison's, which I'll send to you called Little Man at Chihaw Station, he talks about how Burke, Kenneth Burke, called a term like democracy a God term, a term. It is. Yeah. A, a term, yeah. a small G God, because. It, yes, because. It, yeah, yeah, very much. It represents the height of our very yeah. principles and values, you know, as as Western people in terms of democracy. It also represents de uh, the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. Yes, and it so does. it's also not just an ideal; it's an agent in some fashion too. Absolutely. So that's a, so it's a very good candidate for a little G God, very much yes. so. And we're going to talk more about your agent arena uh, relationship yeah. in our next because I I actually use your definition. I don't even know if you know this or not. I use your definition of worldview to contrast a racial worldview and a cultural worldview. Ah, I, I've done that in, in workshops, yeah. you know, and that deals with the, the participatory agent arena relationship. So we'll talk about that yeah, more. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. what Mary, I mean, what, what Ellison talked about in a little man from Chiha station is how there's an anxiety and a unease that comes from being in an American where you have such a diversity. We, we strive for unity yeah. amidst diversity. We strive for yes. out of many one. 
But the thing is, it makes us uncomfortable because we're around all of this difference. We're around all of this diversity. And what he says is most people find it easier to fall back on the things that make them comfortable. Their father's yes. beard, you know, their mother's milk, you know, their religion, the racial identification, the ethnicity right. that they grew up in. And, and that's where they feel at home. And the, the struggle, the agon is to, I think, to become more rooted cosmopolitans, to say, yes, I have my particularity of my experience, whether you put that in religious, ethnic, cultural, whatever terms, but that doesn't stop me from identifying with the whole. Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't stop that and it shouldn't stop that. And he talks about that tension. And in his work, he's like, take personal responsibility for democracy and then let's exercise what, what we call in, 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 in certain uh, corner of the integral uh, uh, theory, yeah. cultural intelligence, which is what you're talking yeah. about as far as yes. distributed cognition yep. and collective, yeah, you know, a collective much. intelligence. Very much. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's very powerful. So, yeah, I mean, so, that, that, so it's not easy. That's There's a stoic nothing idea, right? about this, obviously. No, no, that's what I was going to say. It's a stoic idea, mm. right? Cosmos, that my polis is the cosmos. Mm. Um, and I was going to ask, uh, does Ellison talk about, like what the Stoics talk about, the need, the deep need like you can't just sort of I, I'm a citizen of the cosmos, right? You can't just okay. self-identify. It requires a profound transformation of character and the cultivation of virtue and wisdom, Sophia, right? A, a, a capacity to see the cosmos in the right way so that you attune to it. Does, does Ellison talk about anything like that, uh, about how that's sort of because for me, uh, uh, again, uh, right. Um, part of what's been missing a lot um, in, in the discourse about uh, democracy is that the, that uh, demo democracy depends on right uh, people cultivating uh, the virtues so that they can commit themselves wisely to democracy. Right. Uh, uh, Sorry, I didn't. I, I interrupted for too long, oh, but I, I was trying to get a point. I wanted to ask that question: Is does he does he talk about that deep interconnection in, in so many words? I mean, uh, rumor has it that Ellison was one of the best read novelists of the twentieth century. <laughs> Probably. So he yeah. incorporates across time and space. Yeah, you know, from Greek. Roman and, and Albert Murray also. So that's a part of his perspective. I can say in so many words, maybe not specifically referring to the Stoics per se. Right. Uh, he doesn't have to. That right. I'm not worried about that. But that, yeah. You, but do you, yeah, you get that. Okay. You yeah. definitely, right, you definitely right, get that. Cool. But I do want to end with Democracy 3.0. We mentioned 1.0 being like Athenian democracy, direct democracy. Yeah. 2.0 yes. being American. 3.0, and this comes from um, a, 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 an effort by a gentleman named Tom Attlee and a gentleman's name, uh, Tom Attlee and Martin Rausch. 
where they've created a wise democracy pattern language. And they actually have a series of about a hundred cards. You can barely see it, but they have a pattern language for what they're calling a wise democracy, where you have three dimensions. You have power, participation, and wisdom as, oh, in, wow. as intersecting circles. Okay. Um, this was one of the articles that, that you were supposed to be given to, to, to read, but I'll, I'll, I'll just explain it and I'll send it to you. So if yeah, you yeah. see these three intersecting circles right now, they, they touch barely. The goal yes. is to get them to touch more so that the power and decision making is more participatory for more people. That's something that that Danielle Allen in Justice by Means of Democracy talks about. She calls it power sharing liberalism. She basically yeah, has a yeah, principle yeah, sure. of like non-domination as a fundamental tenet that we are said we are not we're going to stop this empire age domination stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we want to get to a place where the wisdom where which they define in my own words, you know, being acting and being for the whole for the sake of the whole. That's one yes, of their ways yes, of yes, talking yes. about the rhythm. It's very, that's uh, that's very platonic. By ah, the way. OK, I'm not totally. surprised. So do we want it so they become more intersected so that power becomes more participatory and the participation participation becomes more wise and that wisdom informs the power and the participant and it becomes. A well, that answers my question. That answers my question. The question I asked, but I'm just curious. What do you do with the cards? Like, like what, what, what's the? <laughs> what you do is, you know, I'm going to pick one. Pick a card, any card. Okay, so I'll pick okay, one. The, the thir third one, third one down. Okay, or something. okay, yeah. So you have uh, deliberation. They have different principles, right? And they can, and they show you the connection to other principles. So this one is deliberation. Wisdom explores, discerns, weighs creates and envisions. It avoids jumping to conclusions and getting trapped yes. by assumptions. Anything which helps us raise and carefully consider a healthy range of factors, perspectives, and options before and as we act qualifies as deliberation. So utilize- wow, very good and institutionalize diverse forms of such potent consideration. That's one out of 95 cards with that type of potent wisdom. I mean, and so you, you can use it as, as for yourself to really get an idea of this democracy 3.0, what I'm calling that, to when you have an organization making sure that your organization actually lives by these principles. You can build organizations based on this. And I heard about this. Right. I heard about this first when I was listening to um, philosopher, philosopher who you had a conversation with, uh, Forrest um, Landry. Landry? Yes, Forrest Landry. Yeah. And I, I learned about this, you know, wise democracy project and pattern language from Forrest Landry. Because he was talking about democracy and some of the dynamics. And, he, and, he, yeah, 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 and yeah. someone said, any group that you know of that really, and he mentioned them. So I checked them out and I've written about them on my blog. Uh, in fact, the essay that I'm going to send you is called Democracy 3.0, Chaos Before Order. So 
please send me that. And can you send me the, a link or something about that deck? I'd like to get a, oh, uh, th- those cards. Absolutely. That'd be really cool. I definitely will. Okay. We should be bringing, the, I think that's a great place to end. That, you answered my question about the Stoics the, the beautifully. That was, uh, wow. You, you knocked that one out of, the, out of the ballpark. That was just fantastic. Oh. Uh, uh, any final summative words? No, um, I just, you know, again, I, I have an a attitude of gratitude and a, and a feeling of deep appreciation for this opportunity. Oh, me too. Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this series. Like, I'm just, like, I'm, and I, like I said, I'm getting the books. Like, you're just having a profound influence on oh, me. Thank you. I just, I, this well, really, really. Well, that's, that's where we're going to end. In talking with strangers, the key principle, democratic principle that Danielle Allen talks about is reciprocity. Yes, this is a Hegelian idea. Okay, so, I mean, you have so deeply influenced my own thought so that the opportunity for me to do that in kind is is just wonderful. And I'm so looking forward to our next conversation because we're going to be able to parse, you know, now we're going to be talking about, you know, cultural intelligence versus race. Uh, There's a big distinction. And... uh, and yeah, that's really yeah. key to, to my work. And so I'm really looking forward to our next conversation, John. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Greg. It was amazing.